Welcome to episode number 61 of the Animals at Home podcast. My name is Dylan Perrin. Thank you very much for joining me today. This is the podcast that inspires others to push the limits of their reptile husbandry by promoting the importance of high-level creative care individualized for each animal. All right, so just a few quick announcements before we jump into today's episode. I hope your summer is going well. I'm sure many of you are in the same situation that I am. It's been a very strange summer. For me, I think most of you probably know that my day job is a swimming coach. I work at the university coaching swimming, and obviously that got shut down in March. And at this point, we have no idea if that's going to happen or if we're going to start back up in the fall, which we normally do for a fresh season. So I'm definitely in a little bit of a limbo, and I would be lying if I said I wasn't a little bit worried. It's definitely strange thinking that I may not have a job in the fall, which is my main source of income. So the silver lining with that is I do have more time to put time and energy into the podcast and YouTube channel, which is great. So all I ask is that if you can support the channel in any way, that would be fantastic. The easiest thing you can do is share the content. Share it on social media, on Instagram, whatever it is. If you tag me in something, I'll make sure I repost it. That is really, really huge. If we can get the show on more ears, that is the best way you can support me. Also, if you want to give the show a five-star rating on the Apple Podcasting app, that also really, really does help us. We actually have 61 ratings, five-star ratings in the podcast app. And that doesn't sound like that many, but most podcasts, I think it's like 80% of podcasts have less than five ratings. So to have 61 ratings is incredible. So if you are somebody who's done a rating or review, thank you so much. Those are uh, always a huge, huge help. And of course, there are two other ways you can help support the show. So if you go to animalsathomenetwork.com and click on the Animals at Home banner at the top, you can scroll right to the bottom and you'll find links to buy a shirt or a sweater. If you do buy a shirt or a sweater, a little bit of income comes to me. And then I also donate $5 to the Amazon Rainforest Conservancy, which is the charity that Animals at Home is a proud supporter of. Or you can hit the donate button and that's just a PayPal link and that does come right to me. And that, of course, helps support myself and the show. And finally, you can also check out the show's sponsor, CustomReptileHabitats.com. There's always links in the show notes as well as the YouTube description box. Those are affiliate links. So if you click it and you end up going to the site and maybe pick up some substrate or some Arcadia lighting or a Mist King system or whatever you need, a small commission does come back to me at no extra cost to you, which of course helps support me and the show. And I think most of us know by now I have shifted the podcast away from just a single show to a network, hence the name change to Animals at Home Network. That's the name that will appear in any podcasting app you use and the new website as well. And in doing so, I added Bryce Broom's show Animals Everywhere. He has currently released four episodes, and again, you'll just find them under the Animals at Home Network on your podcasting app, and we have been alternating. One week I do an episode, one week he does an episode, and up till now, his four episodes have been seriously fascinating. He does interviews in person, and you can see them on YouTube as well, and lots of venomous keepers and really interesting subjects, so definitely go check that out. And I think we are ready to introduce today's guest. Today I'm speaking with Lori Torini. Lori is an absolute hidden gem on the internet. She has this incredible YouTube channel focused on snake behavior and training, and a lot of the training she does with the snakes I think many people do not think is even possible. She has over 30 years of education and experience in the animal training domain, including a zookeeping technology degree, several horse and dog training courses, She completed the AZA Animal Training Application course, Fundamentals of Animal Learning through the San Diego Zoo. She completed the Living and Learning with Animals course taught by Dr. Susan Friedman. And she also completed the Foundations in Snake Training course through Reptelligence, which is a course that I also took and that's where I originally met Lori. Lori is an incredibly intelligent person and with the exception of the folks over at Reptelligence, that's Peter and Carrie who have been on the podcast in the past, I think episode number 39, Lori is literally one of the only people doing training and enrichment with snakes on YouTube and producing constant content. In this episode, we talk about understanding snake behavior, target training your animals, enrichment, how to use positive reinforcement, 
what process you should go through when you bring home a frightened brand new snake and how you can start working with that snake on a training level. And then we also discuss just globally why training is important, why it is important to be challenging our captive animals on a day-to-day -day basis. I really do hope you enjoy this episode. It definitely blew my mind and gave me a giant to-do list of things to do with my animals. Without anything further, here is Lori Torini. All right. Well, Lori, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I think we somewhat met maybe like almost a year ago now because we both took the Reptelligence uh, foundations and snake. Oh, I'm going to get the, you probably know the name of the course uh, better than I do, but we met in that course uh, <laughs> briefly. And then uh, and more recently, we've been kind of connecting a little bit more. And you must be one of the most prolific snake trainers out there, I think, for, in terms of en enrichment and training. And you're doing things that I think many people don't think is possible with snakes, which is fascinating. So I want to learn all about that, but I need to understand how you got to where you are now. So as when you were growing up, was was your goal to be working with animals right from the beginning? It was. I grew up around animals. In my home growing up, we had dogs, cats, mice, gerbils, rabbits. We had a lot of mammals. And then where I lived, I grew up in Illinois, and I was always outside, and we had woods and a lake and a creek nearby. And I always was around like reptiles and amphibians and arthropods outside. And so I loved all animals. Now, sometimes I would catch like reptiles and amphibians and insects and bring them home. And my mom, she, she liked them, but she just didn't know how to take care of those things. She was a mammal person. And so she wouldn't let me keep them long, like a day. And then she said I had to let them go because she didn't want them to die. And so I didn't actually get a snake until my early 20s. But yes, I grew up around animals. I rode horses um, growing up in in middle school and high school. And so I always knew that I wanted to do something with animals. I don't know if you noticed this, but there is a surprising amount of reptile people who are also horse people. I have kind of noticed that. And also martial artists, I'm starting to notice. It's weird. It's just a strange group of people. <laughs> I guess those things kind of mesh together. They somehow do. So as far as the animal behavior goes, was there something that happened or, or something, a, a moment that led you down that path where you wanted to really focus on animal behavior? It stemmed from animal training. So when I graduated high school, I was already apprenticing as a, as a horse trainer with the instructors that I myself was taking lessons from. And then I got into dog training and was apprenticing as a dog trainer and eventually got certified as a dog trainer and so through training animals so then i was training horses and training dogs you start to understand that the more you understand the animal's behavior the better trainer that you're going to be and then when you get people that bring animals to you that have behavioral baggage that aren't just the normal horse or puppy that has no bad experiences that it arrives with and you're starting with a clean slate for training, when it comes with other issues, you really have to delve into behavior and behavior modification in order to train that animal. And then when I was going through school for my degree in zookeeping, animal behavior was one of the courses that we had to take. And it really opened my eyes to how much the study of and knowledge of animal behavior can help in all of my other animal endeavors, the training, the animal care, I also work part-time as a veterinary assistant. Virtually everything that you do with animals in any respect 
And for a while, I was the coordinator for the community animal response team in Colorado Springs. So we managed emergency rescues and the cart team that deployed during fires, et cetera. Anything that you're doing that involves animals and working with them in any circumstance involves behavior because we were all born to behave. We all behave all the time. All organisms do. And the more you understand that and can understand an individual organism's behavior, the more that you can help them by training them or by caring for them or by um, keeping them safe during an emergency. It's just so crucial to what we do in all other animal fields that now my pursuit and study is going that direction in, in animal behavior and behavior modification. Yeah, and it's interesting, especially when you think about, I think it's easier for people to use horses and dogs as an example first, because we're more familiar with those. And I mean, I guess you'd be able to speak to this, but there's such an importance in understanding their natural behaviors and understanding how they perceive the world. And it's not just what we want from them. We have to set them up. We have to sort of exploit their natural behaviors to modify their behaviors, if that makes sense. Yes, 100%. Absolutely. Because the laws of learning, behavior science, the science of operant conditioning, they work across species. They aren't different for a dog or a horse or a person or a snake or a crocodile. All animals learn in the same way and behavior science applies to all of them. What changes is the way that we work with those individual species because they're all gonna perceive the world differently. So I might use a verbal cue or a hand signal with my dog But with my snake, I have to think, well, what can I use in lieu of a voice command or a verbal cue? What can I use instead of that with the snake? Can I use a target? Can I use a light? Can I use a scent? And so the principles don't change, but how you work with those individual learners may change. Yeah. And I think for reptiles, they are so far removed from us. It can be difficult for us to figure out how they're perceiving the world because it just it is just so unlike with a horse and a dog you can even read their body language easier you know because it's easy to see when a dog is is angry or scared and a snake it can be more difficult so there's definitely nuance so in terms of so obviously you have this great foundation of dog training and horse training did you immediately start working with your rep like you said you got your first snake when you were 20 did you immediately start working with them in terms of trying to train or did that come later I didn't. That snake, you know, I just took care of it back then. And that was over, that was a long time ago, like 30 years ago. So I just took care of it in a tank with a heater and I fed it and I handled it. You know, I didn't do anything special with it, but I also didn't need to. I got it already as an adult snake. So it was already habituated to people and handling. And I didn't really have any need or necessity to train it to shift or, or habituate it to people or teach it anything because it was doing, we were interacting fine the way things were. And it never occurred to me to train snakes until I got back into snakes three years ago mm-hmm. because I ended up getting a jungle carpet python that was on the very, very, very extreme end of fearful and shy. And she just was over the top afraid of everything. And I thought, I mean, she would, evacuate her bladder and bowels, not even when I held her, but just if I changed anything in her enclosure, it upset her so. And I thought, well, how would I handle this if this was a dog? And I've worked with feral dogs before and feral horses. And I just thought to myself, what would I do if this was a feral dog? How would I set this animal up to succeed? How would I modify the environment to make the animal feel safe 
and how would I get it habituated to me and to activity? And then how would I train it? And so that's what led me down the path to snake training. And then when it was so successful with her, I thought, well, what if I take a snake that's middle of the road, that's not so extreme, like just a normal snake that you would get, or even one that's on the far end of being really um, resilient and really outgoing, and how would they be trained? And boy, now I just train every snake I get because there's really no reason not to. It makes life so much easier for me to train the snakes, to come out of their enclosure when I need them to, to train them to shift, to train them to get on the scale. It's just amazing and it's fun. And I hear people say all the time, well, my snake's kind of cage aggressive, but they're fine when I get them out. Or they are nippy if I go in their enclosure, but they're just fine once I get them out. Well, then ask them to come out. Don't mm -hmm. go into their space mm -hmm. and cause that behavior to happen. You know, teach the snake to come out. Ask them to come out first and then handle the snake. Yes. Yeah. And it's it's funny because when you first start working in this, you start thinking, wow, this is a lot of work to really get them to do these behaviors and whatnot. But now what you're, I'm kind of hearing you say is actually easier for you now that because you work with them right away, you understand how their behavior works. You're able to train them quickly because obviously you're you're good at it at this point. And these things now are just kind of second nature. You open the door and the snake will come out. You can get you don't have to fight you know, have them rip off half of the decorations out of their enclosure to get them out. And it just, it becomes no. easier as long as you lay that foundation first. Correct. Because all that's very frustrating. And I was there three years ago when I got back into snakes and got my first few because I didn't know any different. This one jungle carpet python forced me down a different path. And now that I know that path, I would never go back to the way I was doing things before. I would never force an animal out of the enclosure unless there were exigent circumstances and emergency. You know, then, of course, when there's an emergency, we do things we normally wouldn't do. And we just have to deal with that. And the animals, you know, we're probably saving their lives if it's an emergency. If we have to evacuate due to a fire or a flood or there's a medical emergency, then we're just going to grab the snake and go. Yeah. But on a normal daily basis, it's not an emergency that you hold your snake. And so if you can take the time to lay a good foundation take a few weeks or months or even a year or two. They live 20 or 30 years. You can't invest that little bit of time in the beginning to make sure that your relationship is smooth down the road and your animal's not fearful and you don't worry about getting bitten. I'm studying right now over the summer to be a fear-free fear -free certified trainer. And the veterinarian that I use for my snakes is a fear-free certified veterinarian. And, um, both of the professional organizations that I belong to, the CCPDT and the IAABC, they adhere to the least intrusive principles. And you have to sign something that says, if you're part of our organization, you know, if you write for our journals, if you're a certified trainer with us, you have to adhere to these principles. And so everything I do, I try to think what's the least intrusive way that I can accomplish this, you know, husband behavior or this veterinary behavior or this whatever behavior that I'm trying for. And, you know, what's the way that I can do this where I'm mitigating fear, where the snake's not afraid or the other animal's not afraid. So the, that's the path that I've chosen to go down. And it isn't any different with snakes than it is with other animals. I don't, I don't know why people think that. There are a lot of misconceptions among snake owners about their brain and their cognition and their behavior that's just flat out incorrect. Yeah, it's weird. We have these people who are obsessed with snakes, but then simultaneously write them off as kind of like 
dumb rocks in a way where they're just like, yeah, I love them, but I they are, they are very unsophisticated animals, which is kind of weird from a... You would think if anybody's going to be biased towards the intelligence, it's going to be, be the people who love the animal. You would think so. And I'm amazed that people who breed hundreds and hundreds of snakes don't know how their brain is structured, mm-hmm. don't know how their behavior works, don't know basic physiological and neurological things about the animal that they're raising. And all of this information is out there in the scientific literature. And it has been for a long time. If you just go look it up, it isn't that we don't know how the snake's brain is structured and how it works. It works the same way as all the other vertebrate brains. You know, it's not different from ours. There's a, a huge misconception that their brain doesn't have all of the same parts as ours. And that's untrue. I mean, that's just completely untrue. They have a forebrain, a midbrain, a hindbrain. They have um, the dorsal ventricular ridge, which researchers now believe is homologous to our, um, not our cerebral, our neocortex, which is where we have higher brain function. And so they have all of those things in their brain, just like all other vertebrates do. Their brains produce dopamine, just like all other vertebrates do. Uh And yet there's a huge misconception that they can't learn or they don't problem solve or that they aren't able to have sophisticated cognition they certainly can they didn't survive millions of years of evolution by accident and chance and luck yeah you know they they learn they problem solve they grow just like the rest of us yes yeah and it's obvious that they learn because even people who don't think they learn will pick up on behaviors that their (laughs) animals have learned to do you know they're like oh i gotta be careful when i open this one's tub because it strikes when i open it it's like well that is that was a learned behavior it didn't come out of the egg that way so it's interesting so i want to dial back just to the carpet python that original one that you got because we're going to get into this more in detail but i'm just curious just on a surface level, what did you start doing with that animal initially once you realized, okay, this is a very, very nervous animal? What were some of the changes that you made sort of immediately? Well, initially when she arrived, I put her in a quarantine tub. It's not a small one, but you know, a pretty big one, but she was only a yearling and she did okay in that. She didn't eat at first. And I had already four other carpet pythons here that were babies. And then I worked with two adults at the college. And they were really good feeders. And so I thought it, it indicated she was nervous and uncomfortable because she wasn't eating like within the first week she got here even. And, um, you know, I just tried to give her time and started ended up feeding her on a plate that I just left in her tub. And then I got an enclosure set up for her with like an exoterra. And I put her in it one day and she just was out of her mind. She urinated, she emptied her bowels, she did a form of locomotion that at the time I didn't even know snakes could do. It's called saltatory locomotion. And it's a jumping, it's where they tense every muscle in their body at once and push off. Wow. And she did it in front of me. And all of a sudden she was in a different spot. Like she dematerialized here and materialized here. And I thought, what just happened? I looked it up and it is a thing, but it's, it indicates a high level of fear. And distress. I've never so, heard of that. I've never heard of a snake doing that. It was. I've never seen another snake do it. And she did it twice. And so I put her back in the tub. And that's when I started to problem solve and think, well, I don't want her to live her life in a tub. She's a beautiful snake. I want to see her and interact with her, but I don't want her to be fearful. And I want her to understand that if she wants, there's more to the world than living in that tub. 
And so I initially got a Neodesha cube. It's two by two. It, they used to keep venomous snakes in it. And it just has a window in the front and the rest of it is completely enclosed. And I put her in that with a tub inside and with tons of stuff inside. So she could hide if she wanted or she didn't have to look out the window if she didn't want. And I set it near a really busy area of the house, a highly traveled area. And I left her time to passively habituate. And after a couple of weeks, I didn't see her at first for a week or two. And I started getting nervous. You know, did she somehow get out? My husband said, there's no way she could get out. It's for venomous snakes. There's no way she got out. Yeah, yeah. She's just hiding. And eventually she started to come out and look out the window. And then eventually she stayed out and she got on a perch right behind the window and she would just sit there all the time and look out. And she wouldn't pay any attention to what we were doing. And that was a huge step. So then I tried opening the door and she fled again to her hiding. And I just kept doing that until I could open the door and she wouldn't move. And I put a whole bookshelf together sitting on the floor in front of her enclosure with the door open while she sat there and watched me. So those were huge steps. And when she got to that point, she had habituated herself at her own pace with me just doing nothing. And I would just stick her food in the enclosure on this plate. Then I started to problem solve how to teach her to shift out because her enclosure would need cleaning. And I didn't want to scare her by entering her enclosure or grabbing her out. I mean, we would have had to backtrack a, a long way if I did that. And she gave me the idea to target train her because she started targeting the empty plate when I would put it in there. Wherever I would put the plate, she would go there and get an ambush position above it. And I thought, well, she's targeting that plate. That's interesting. And then one day when I went to put the food on the plate, I put the plate in, got the food on the tongs to put it in, and she looked up from the plate and took the food off the tong. So she had taught herself the plate means food, but the food comes from up there off these tongs. So then I said, okay, I wonder if I stick this plate on a stick, if she'll follow it out of the enclosure. And she did. And it was like a light bulb moment for me. And it changed the world for her because then through targeting her out of the enclosure when I needed to shift her, she became habituated to me and the environment. And now she wants out, like just to cruise around and explore. Like she no longer wants to just sit in her enclosure. Sometimes she just wants out and she's not afraid anymore. And so I really say that she trained me. I didn't train her. She, she is the one that guided that learning, not me. That is incredible. Yeah, that's a classic like uh, animal trainer line where they say, you know, like I, you help dogs with people problems, you know, or like horses with people problems because it's always a lot of times it's the human that's messed up along the way and, and taught them to be afraid. Right. And uh, so, so that's Correct. kind of what set the spark off. That's amazing. And your collection has like completely exploded in those in these last well, three years. It has because in the beginning I had like six snakes. And I was really happy working with them. They were all carpet pythons. And then I started reading in forums and social media, all these issues that people said they were having with their snakes. My snake's biting me. I can't get my snake out of the enclosure. And I thought, well, that's an easy fix. I just started thinking these things are all easy fixes. Why don't you just do this or do that? And so I thought there's a real gap in the, in the hobby for trainers and behaviorists working with reptiles in general, but specifically with snakes. The only other two people that I know are Peter and Carrie. 
from Reptelligence that are training snakes. And I found their site and it was like, oh, somebody else is doing this besides me. It made me really happy. And then I found a few people in zoos that are training reptiles and some snakes and a couple of published articles where people had trained snakes. And other than that, there's just a real hole in the hobby as far as snake training and behavior. And I decided um, I retired two years ago from a job with the city of Colorado Springs after 21 years. And I thought, you know what? There's thousands of people dog training and horse training. And there's thousands, probably millions of videos and books on dog and horse training. What am I going to give to those communities that hasn't already been done? But I can give a lot to the reptile hobby, snakes specifically, just based on what I've taught myself. And so then I started getting more snakes to try different things with. I fell in love with carpet pythons and Morelia. And I've just decided that that's the path my work is taking, that my at-home work is taking. Aside from running the animal snake sanctuary, I'm doing the behavior research and the training with snakes. Right. Yeah, because the animal, animal sanctuary is, is mostly horses and dogs or... It's supposed to be horses. It's mm. an equine sanctuary. Right, right. But as with any animal sanctuary, you always get uh, odds and ends of other animals that come along with it. So we used to take in almost any species, like you name it, we probably had that species here of domestic animal and then a few wild animals. But we've, we are really having to try to just narrow it down to just horses. Um, you know, we have... 14 dogs, 17 cats here, 47 horses, um, two pigs and a chicken. And then the animal sanctuary itself has six snakes that were either relinquished to them or donated for educational outreach. And then I have 74 snakes that are my own or belong to my own training business. And most of those are Morelia. I love carpet pythons and bridles pythons. Yes, I, I do as well. Morelia is great. Yeah. And so then I just have one or more of a few other species because they're common species in the hobby. And I feel like I need to understand those species because so many people have them as pets. Um, things like we have one hog nose, a couple of bull snakes, uh, rainbow boas. I have one boa imperator, boa stigma cross now, uh, two royal pythons. And those are species I have because they're so prevalent in the hobby and as pets that I feel like I would be doing a disservice if I didn't at least understand how they learn and their behavior and try some of my training um, methods with them to see how they react to that. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. That way you can. It, do you find there's a big difference between different species in terms of their trainability? Not so much with the pythons because we have a children's python here, the royal pythons. The python, uh, we have the one reticulated python, um, Garrett Hartle actually sent here. He said, I'd like to send you one. I'm really um, interested in what you're doing. And and I'd like to send you one of my super dwarf retics to see what you think of it. So he was at, he's actually here so that I can see what I think of his temperament, his behavior, his trainability. But in general, the pythons all do very well with target training um, and station training and the choice-based handling and teaching them to come out of the enclosure. I find the boas are more on the shy side. I have to work harder with the boas to get them engaged in what's going on. And so I use slightly different methods with the shy snakes. And, and corn snakes, um, I have quite a few too. I have 14 corn snakes. 
And I find with them, it's really interesting because some of them are super shy, super shy. And I have to use certain methods to encourage them to engage. And then I have other corn snakes that would live outside of their enclosure and interact with me all the time if they could. And then most are in the middle. The corn snakes and the pythons are similar in the way that I work with them. And I would say the most shy are the boas. I do have one Western hognose who's just an interesting, an interesting snake. She seems different from all the rest in her behavior. Um, but she, after being here a couple of years now, when she starts to get really hungry, and I do behavior-based feeding, so I don't just feed on a schedule. They have to show me they are hungry and they really mean that they need food now. You know, not just their normal habitual hunting behavior, but I'm really hungry and it's time to eat. Right. And if I was in the wild, I'd be actively looking for food. She comes to her enclosure door and she'll get up on her perch, which, you know, that's not typical behavior for a hognose. Or she'll push on the door and I'll open it. And now she'll shift out onto a station for feeding. And I wow. usually set up like a foraging exercise for her um, with boxes and plastic containers and let her find the food because at least this hog nose isn't so good at taking it off tongs. Like she does better when she just comes across the rodent or the fish or whatever and finds it. And then she just starts eating it. So there are differences, you know, between species and I do not work with them all the exact same way. And some of it's trial and error. I, I use Google scholar a lot, but if there's not someone else who's worked with that species, then I'm just figuring it out as I go. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So that is a large collection, 74. And I, I know that we kind of briefly talked before we officially started recording is you have large, you know, well enriched enclosures for pretty much, I think all of them. How are you fitting yes. this even in your house? <laughs> I, yeah, I have um, right now three foot, four foot and six foot enclosures for all of them with the minimum height, um, with the exception of one of 18 inches, because most of the snakes I work with are climbers, semi-arboreal, and even the ones that aren't, I offer climbing opportunities and am a surprised that some of the snakes that aren't arboreal or are terrestrial or even burrow a lot will occasionally climb. And I like to see those behaviors. It's outside their normal range of what would be considered natural behavior, but they're in a captive setting. They're under human care, under captive management, and they don't have to spend 100% of their energy budget on survival and reproduction. So they're going to figure out other things to do with that energy. And so in addition to making sure that every enclosure has things that would be appropriate for them to express natural behaviors and species typical behaviors, I also put novel items in there that they wouldn't encounter in the wild. And I just see what happens, mm -hmm. see if they use it. And oftentimes they do. Now, I haven't tried bioactive yet. I use a lot of natural substrates. I'm trying plants. I have a live plant behind me. I'm trying to keep alive because I love greenery and I really want to put plants in the enclosures, but I'm killing all the plants. <laughs> and so I use a lot of fake foliage and fake plants, a lot of branches and rocks and things from outside that aren't alive that I'm not having to keep alive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Plants can be tricky for reptile keepers for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm, and I feel horrible when they're not doing well because they're alive too and I don't want to kill them. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm working on a couple of plants and if I keep them alive, then I'll probably add more. Um, but really, I concentrate on making sure that the snakes have opportunities for species typical behavior and then opportunities for new behaviors 
that they might find reinforcing because they are under human care, why not try new things with them? Yeah. Yeah. I also try to make sure they, they have plenty of behavioral opportunities and choices. And that's another pet peeve of mine with the reptile hobby is statements people make that, well, I tried my snake in a tub and I tried them in an enclosure and they, they, they did better in the tub. They, you know, these snakes like tubs better. Well, you don't really know that unless they have those two options at the same time. You have to give them these options or you don't know which one they prefer. If they only have the one choice, of course, they're probably going to do what we perceive as fine with that choice. But if we give them more than one choice and let them choose, then we might be surprised. Yeah. Or they might surprise yeah. us. Preference testing is big here. Preference testing, mm, we yeah. choose, we give the animals opportunities to have choices where they're showing us what their preferences are. So I may divide the enclosure in half and put all natural stuff on one side and all like plastics and cardboards and paper substrate on the other side and see where the animal spends most of their time. Or I may put a tub set up in the enclosure, fully furnished tub, like that they would live in in a breeder rack and then cut a hole in it so that they have the option to live in that tub or come into the habitat at large and spend time. I do a lot of that to see what the animals are choosing to do because we can't know their mind unless we give them choices and they can show us what they prefer. Yes. Yeah. That is such a good point. It's like, I, I, the point I make all the time is people will put their animal in a tub and then that sort of perpetuates or, or it doesn't allow the animal to even want to move. So then it doesn't move. And then they go, well, why would I add anything else? Because when I put it in this tub, it doesn't move anyway. Well, maybe that is the reason it's not moving. It has nowhere to go. So it's, I think that's a really or, interesting idea is to put it right into the enclosure, a larger enclosure. Well, yes, because then you can see where they're choosing to spend most of their time. And I would, I ask those people, when are you observing your animal? Because if you don't have a camera on the animal 24 seven, you don't know what it's doing when you're not there, when you're sleeping or when you're not in the room. And so you can't say that that snake just sits there because maybe it's not just sitting there for the eight hours you're sleeping or when the eight hours you're at work, maybe it's very active. And usually, you know, what's going to happen to animals in an environment, no matter what environment, whether it's the most elaborate enclosure or whether it's a tub, if, if they express um, stress behaviors, it's going to be during the time when they're normally awake. They're still going to sit there and sleep and rest at their normal time. But then when they wake up, they're either going to display typical behaviors or they're going to display aberrant behaviors or stereotypies. And you're not seeing that if you're not watching them. Yeah. And you actually, I've heard you say in some of your videos, you actually do stay up all night sometimes watching snake I behavior. Do. A lot of the snakes I have are nocturnal or crepuscular. And I'm usually up till about three in the morning watching their behavior. Um, and, you know, I had written a blog a few months ago in response to just comments in the hobby in general, but a specific podcast that I listened to where they were talking about Python Regis, Royal Pythons preferring tubs. You know, they do just fine in tubs and that's what they prefer. And I thought, well, maybe they do prefer that, but you don't know that unless you give them an option for something else. Why, how easy would it be for these people that have thousands of snakes to attach a pass through between their rack system and an enclosure and see where that ball python chooses to spend its time. But no one, took me up on it 
I didn't think anybody was doing it. I've since found out that Zach Laufman at West Liberty University um, with his zookeeping students are doing that exact experiment with ball pythons. But I, so I went out and got two royal pythons and I asked the breeders, they were from two different breeders, two born at two different times, um, how they were keeping them. Of course, they were keeping them in a baby rack um, with a water dish and paper. So I got a tub that same size and set it up with a water dish and paper. And for the first few days, I thought, well, I'll let them settle in before I try this experiment. And, you know, the first day they just sat there sleeping. And then that night when they woke up, all kinds of stress behaviors. They were pushing on the lid. Um, they were edging. They were just frantic within the enclosure. And I thought, well, maybe it's just because it's a new tub and it's their first night. But the second night they were doing the same thing, stress behaviors, and I couldn't stand to watch it anymore. So I set up uh, three by two by two habitats and put the baby racks inside and, and drilled, cut a hole in them so they could come out when they want. Um, and they're never in those tubs. They're sitting out on top of their humid hide. They're using their branch. Now, are they as active as my Bradley? No, like no way. Bradley are like super active, but they're also not using those tubs. Like the most they do during their active period is they'll cruise inside the tub a few times and come back out. They're also not using a black plastic hide like the um, typical reptile hides that you get from Reptile Basics or anywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, I always provide those to every snake. So they're there if they want them. They don't use that either. They use their humid hide to get in or sit on top of, they sit on their branch or they just lay between their baby rack tub and the wall. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're like a, uh, just an incredibly dedicated scientist is what it seems like. You just like, you want to defeat <laughs> that myth. So you go out, you buy these two separate animals, you set it up and, and it's so true. There's so much more to these animals than, than the hobby perpetuates and it's a lot more exciting. So as far as the enrichment and the training goes, do you have an end game with them as far as like, that might not even be a great question, but do you see it going somewhere more than stationing or, or targeting? Like, I, I'm not exactly sure, sure what yeah, I'm asking, I, but it's more, more like, do you have an now, end goal? Well, I don't want to say an end goal. I guess the end goal is to see how, how much I can do with them over mm -hmm. their lifetime. Like, what are they able to accomplish over years of being with me and trying new things? Um, but now I'm starting to teach cooperative behaviors like um, stationing on a scale, like not just shifting out so I can clean your enclosure, but let's see if you can station on this scale to be weighed without me handling, you know? And I would like to start trying some other husbandry behaviors like oral medications and injections. I've had snakes that I've had to give oral medications and injections to, and that I've had to take to the vet for radiographs. And I have noticed that less restraint is better and that's exactly actually what I'm learning in this fear-free trainers course is that typically with most animals, the less you restrain them, the more comfortable they are and the less fearful they are. And it was certainly true with snakes. The less I restrain the snake, the better they were about the oral medication, the better they were about the injections. The more that we tried to physically restrain them, the more frantic they got and it was more difficult. So I'm starting to try to train more things with that. I'm starting with the scale. And I was really excited the other night because I started with the scale, but I put a cloth on it so it wasn't slippery. And one of the snakes, when I was delivering the food reinforcement, got his tooth caught on the cloth. 
So I thought, okay, that's a bad idea. Um, so I just left it smooth and it's one of those smooth metal baby scales. Well, some of them don't want to come out on that. So now I've taken like a little footstool, a plastic footstool that's just like one step up and I've turned it upside down so the legs stick up and they'll climb onto it with no problem because they have traction. And one followed the target the other night around one of the legs because she came out and she's so long, she's longer than the scale. And I thought, well, I need your whole body on the scale. So why don't you coil around this? So she followed the target around the leg until she was coiled and all the way on the scale. And then I reinforced her and I was very excited. I got it on video and I will get that uploaded because Amazing. that's exciting that not only is she following it out of her enclosure and getting on the scale, but now she followed it to coil around the leg of the stool so that her whole body was on the scale. Because snakes are so long, some of these cooperative behaviors are hard because the whole snake is not fitting on the device. Right. And so now I'm starting to teach them to pos different positions, I guess you would call it, to station in a specific way now before they get the food reinforced. Do you think I training think is sort of opposed to, so you have a group of people who are really trying to advance the hobby in terms of trying to replicate nature. And, and some people might uh -huh. say training doesn't fit within replicating nature because in, in nature, obviously they're not interacting with humans. What, what do you think about that? Do you think that it does have a, have well, a place in advancing the hobby? I think it does, but. Well, training, training is just guided learning. So learning is natural. We learn every day. Animals in the wild learn constantly. Even inadvertently, we're teaching our animals things and they're teaching us things. And when we interact with each other, we're inadvertently teaching each other things. You know, if I act this way with Dylan, he's going to do this. Well, I don't want him to do that. So I need to change my behavior. So Dylan acts a different way. Yeah. That's just an example. Um, so animals are learning all the time. It's perfectly natural to learn. And what we're doing as trainers is just guiding that learning in order to modify behavior so they are less stressed in our world and we're we're helping them to be less stressed in our world it is per, it is not natural for them to live in a house or live in our world or even live in an outdoor habitat that's smaller than their natural habitat would be or that has different stuff in it than their natural habitat would be or maybe slightly different climate none of that's natural so we're guiding them to learn how to live and interact in our world without being fearful and we need to learn not to be intrusive. We need to learn to watch their body language. And when they're telling us back off, I'm not comfortable with this, we need to do that. And if, if we don't do that, what happens? The animal bites us or the animal um, urinates or defecates or the animal gets frantic and it hurts itself or it escapes. It, you know, it demonstrates escape behaviors because we're doing something it doesn't want us to do. And we aren't listening to all of the signs that it gave us to try to tell us, don't do this. You know, and, if I and, force you out of the enclosure, you're, you're going to come out with a totally different mindset that, than if you voluntarily come out of the enclosure. Exactly. And it's hard to imagine how much, uh, if you reduce the cortisol levels in their blood over a lifetime, you, it's hard to imagine how much longer that will allow them to live for. It probably has a massive effect on their on their longevity. Oh, I'm sure it does. Then their overall fitness and their reproductive health, their general fitness, the way that they digest their meals. Stress affects physiologically all of those body systems. It affects the heart, your digestion. 
it, it affects a lot. And when you're stressing your animal out constantly or even intermittently, yeah, it's not going to be as fit overall and it probably won't live as long. Yeah, I totally agree. So let's talk about some examples. Maybe we'll just kind of run through maybe a couple scenarios that some of the listeners would go through themselves. So let's imagine that someone's bringing home a new snake. Maybe it's just a new baby snake, so it hasn't picked up too many bad habits. What would you, uh-huh. what, what would, how would you recommend they start working with the animal if they want to start training it? Okay, so first of all, when you first bring a snake home, ask the person you got the snake from, how was it kept? And I've asked this before, and breeders look at me like I'm nuts, like, And I'm telling them, I'm not asking you that for any other reason than I want to duplicate that setting when they first arrive home. Mm -hmm. So even if it's a way that I'm not intending to keep them, I don't want to just suddenly throw them into a completely new environment. So I want to duplicate the setting they came from as closely as possible. And then I just want to watch them for a few days. And I want to see where they fall on that scale of behavior, their temperament, what their temperament is. So some people and some snakes and some other animals are super fearful and reactive and shy about everything. And some are going to be super outgoing and super resilient and be like, I've been here five minutes, but I want out of this tub and I want to cruise around and explore and I'm fine if you hold me. That's not a lot of snakes, but then you don't have a lot that are on that extremely fearful and shy side either, but some sometimes you will. Most are in between. Well, you first need to see what kind of temperament your snake has to know where you need to start with them as far as training, because maybe you just need to start with general passive habituation, but maybe they're already okay with you, like looking in the tub or looking in the enclosure and they're not scared. And so then you can start active habituation. So passive habituation is just leaving them alone. Let them get used to you and the activity in your household. When you do move them to a new enclosure, the way you want to keep them, let them habituate to that enclosure for a while before you mess with them and just watch them. So that you can start learning what kind of animal you have, what kind of personality they have. Active habituation is now I'm doing things because I want you to get used to me and to the environment and shifting out. So I'm going to do things like um, feed you from tongs, show you a target and pair that with food, um, maybe give you a puzzle inside your enclosure. And then if that works, set the puzzle just outside the enclosure the next time for you to feed from. So I'm, I'm, actively doing things to try to set my snake at ease and get them used to what's going on. And then once they're used to all that and they have developed some trust in you and, and they're doing those things without fear, then you can start more active training where we're actually deciding, well, I want to teach my snake this behavior. Now I'm going to go about training that behavior. So you have to come up with a cue. You've got to tell the snake or figure out a cue to ask the snake to do what you want. So if I want the snake to station on a scale, I have to figure out a way to ask it to do that. I can't just tell it, come and give it a hand signal or point and say table like I do a dog. Mm -hmm. I have to figure out a way to communicate to that snake. I want you to come out and I want you to to end up right here. And for most of my snakes, I'm using a target for that. So once once they're trained to follow that target, The behavior is whatever it is that I want them to do. Once they've done the behavior, then you have to figure out what am I going to use as reinforcement for that animal? Am I always going to use food and what food am I going to use? Um, I usually do start with food as a reinforcer, but once my snakes are used to training, sometimes I'll use other things as reinforcers. 
some of my snakes enjoy certain activities. And so I'll set that activity up kind of in the background where they can see it. And then they do this behavior. So before I get to that climbing station, I have to sit on this scale for a minute. And I put the scale between the enclosure and the climbing station. So you can start using other things as reinforcers once the animal is a more advanced learner. But typically, primary reinforcers for snakes are going to be food. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And I guess you do have to be careful. You don't want to be overfeeding and, and because that's the one tough thing with snakes is that it's not like a dog where you can, you know, do a treat every five seconds, you can feed it right. and then you, you got to wait for two more weeks. So yeah, I guess, it, it how, how do we get around that? Snakes. Well, listen, dogs expect a lot of treats and they get used to that. And so sometimes if you go too long without re reinforcing, the dog will be like, oh, I might not want to do that today because it's been like two weeks since you reinforced me for it. Well, snakes naturally do this on their own. When they hunt or they get in an ambush position, they don't find a meal every night, but they still get in that ambush position every night. So they might get into a tree or get into um, a hiding place on the ground in the ambush position, get a meal, and then they'll go back to that same spot for a long time and get in ambush position. Maybe a week, two weeks go by before they get another meal, but they still keep doing it just from that one time of being reinforced. So intermittent reinforcement schedules work phenomenal for snakes because that's how they are in nature anyway. So if I reinforce a snake for shifting onto a scale tonight, it's going to be so much more apt to do it. And, and it's going to do it faster two weeks from now when I go to do it again, because it already associates that with a place where it was successful in getting the meal. Right. And it, it works so well and they have such a good memory that I've set up foraging exercises in one spot. And then when the snake's been out exercising, they've gone to that spot and got an ambush position just from one time eating there before. Wow. That makes You know, it's funny because now, now I think about it, my carpet python, he always goes in the same spot. And I think now that he's, I think he's trained me because I fed him in that spot and then I continue to feed him <laughs> in that spot and he keeps going back there. So every, every morning I wake up and he's in the yeah. same spot. I'm like, dude, why don't you just go and, and somewhere else? But I think now he's, he knows that that's where he goes for food. Correct. So I should start maybe trying to feed him in another place if I want him to, you know, use some more of the enclosure. Yeah. Yeah, because if they learn that they have a possibility to get reinforced in different locations, they'll go around to the different location. Right. It's the same way that station training works. Early in the beginning, I, I station trained a few where I would just teach them that food came from this tub. In fact, the two in this enclosure behind me, which they're, oh, one's out right here, but you probably can't see her on video. Um, I just set their tubs out here. And they exit and get in their tub because I initially just trained them that that's where they find reinforcement. And the interesting thing is that's a cohabbed pair of carpet pythons, but they will each go to their tub. Like I've switched the tub. I mean, I, I don't care which tub they go into, but they have bypassed the other one's tub to go into theirs. And I found that was another thing they taught me was that they have the ability to discriminate between stations and between targets. And I actually did a target discrimination test with two inland carpet pythons. Um, I showed them the target they'd been trained to and I showed them a different target. And in three out of three trials, they always went to the one that they were trained to. And I even switched them up and they, they still always went to their target. So it's almost like you're at the airport to pick somebody up and you hold up their name 
you know, Mr. Smith, yeah. they see their target and they go to that. They're not stupid. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's amazing. So in terms of, so imagine, so let's say you have a, a snake that's able to follow the target and maybe come out and station on a scale. It, it, if you had to f- maybe weigh him next week, for example, but you already fed him last week, is there any way to, like, can you still, you is, is it unadvisable to have him follow the target, get on the scale and then not reward him with food? No, because they do that in nature all the time. Okay. Go back to those same spots. So that's why the intermittent reinforcement schedule works so well. What I might do after that is allow them, if it's a snake that likes to climb or likes to swim or likes to do another activity, is have that activity possible after the weighing. So, hey, I followed the target here and you didn't feed me, but, oh, now I'm going to swim or now I'm going to climb on this thing and I'm going to explore a little bit before you put me away. They're still getting reinforced for being out, but it's the same way that slot machines work for people. You know, you don't always get paid out if you're on a slot machine, but you still keep going back and snakes that works really well for snakes. I think just because of their natural history, their natural biology, you know, they don't eat every day and yet they still go back to those same hunting spots. And I have um, a snake that's very outgoing. I haven't had to teach him to shift or anything. He was just miraculously very um, amenable to handling from the beginning. And he comes out of his enclosure every night because he wants to. Like, if I don't let him out, he throws a tantrum. So he comes out and he, he has a route that he takes to this activity station that I fed him on just a couple of times. And he gets in the ambush position. He'll sit on that activity station all night long until I put him away. And I'll feed him there occasionally. Just, but I don't always feed him there. But he still goes back there every night. So you're not going to ruin your animal by not reinforcing them every single time. And I think snakes really work well for that. What I do try to do is reinforce them more than once during a session. So if it's their normal feeding time, instead of feeding like one small rat, I might feed two adult mice or, you know, three weaned mice. And so I'm feeding the same amount in grams. I'm just feeding it in three items instead of one so that I can do more repetitions of that behavior during that one session. I have talked to more than one veterinarian that has said that that's fine. You know, I wanted to make sure that that wasn't going to throw off their digestion. And they said, it's fine. You know, some nights when snakes hunt, they may look up luck out and get more than one prey item on a night. And so, um, and I haven't noticed anything adverse from doing that. Yeah, no, that, that definitely makes sense. And and yeah, I guess when you think about it, because in the wild, they're going to be, they're going to miss opportunities all the time to eat. It's almost like if, if you do, if they do a behavior and you don't reward them, reward them with food, it's going to be less of a mental impact on them than it would be for a dog. Because like you were saying, a dog's Correct. always expecting it. And if he learns right away that sometimes he's not going to get right. the treat, he's going to say, well, I'm not doing this anymore. But the snake in, in, right. in that sense is even easier. So that's really, really cool. As far as like... What you want to make sure is that they don't have a negative experience. So if you're not giving a food reinforcer for, say, getting on that scale or shifting into their shift box, you just want to make sure that they don't have a negative experience that they associate with that. Right. And that something about the experience is rewarding for them. So they get freedom or they get a scent or they get something interesting to investigate. You know, you just don't want to make it a, a negative or a bad association. You want right. to keep it positive even if you're not giving food. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That's good. That's a really good point. And as far as bringing the snakes, like if, if I think about my boas, I'm thinking like the last thing I would want to do is have them roaming around my room following a rat because they're so, they're so like aggressive when they eat. But I think that's only because of how they've, I've always fed them. Right. I give them the rat, they hit it right away and, and they're, right. they are like, they'll strike at the glass as soon as they start smelling the rats in the room type thing. But t- so does so that aggressiveness what? start to tone down? Yes. So I took in, I've taken in some adults. Well, I took in an adult carpet python that is like that, that I don't, he was already an older animal and I don't know how he was being treated or handled or fed before, but he has really ill-defined parameters around feeding. And I'm trying to work through that right now. But if your primary interaction with the animal is feeding them and you always feed them in a specific way, then you're teaching them that every time you walk up to an enclosure foods coming or every time you open the lid foods coming all of those things that you do to prepare for feeding are historical antecedents and the boa that i recently got who's just a baby and he's extremely shy at this point um he spends a lot of time in his tub and i've really never seen him in his enclosure at large yet i'm sure someday he will (laughs) but i would um I, I make him at least stick his head out of the tub to eat. And so now I've had him two or three months and now he's recognizing these historical antecedents and he's coming out on his own. So now when I walk into the enclosure and take the screen, unlock the screen, I see his little nose stick out. And then I start to take the screen lid off and I see his head stick out. So last time I fed him, I turned around to get the target and the food reinforcer and the tongs. And half his body was hanging out of the tub, like hovering in the air, waiting for the food. And he followed the target this time with the first half of his body all the way out of his enclosure. He ate, and then he got all the way out of the tub and perched on the enclosure lip for about an hour before he went back in. So that's a huge step for that little guy, huge. But he, he long before that was recognizing all those historical antecedents, all the little things I did that told him food was going to be coming. And so we want to really be careful that if we're going to handle our snakes, that we're not doing anything the same as when we're going to feed the snake. Or, or that we just feed our snakes in all different places or in all different manners so that they don't always think food's coming. Target training does help with that. If you have a snake with a really strong food response who thinks maybe it's always feeding time. And I have a couple of those here. I absolutely never feed them without the target first. And I don't even train them to follow the target. In their case, the target is a cue that they're going to eat. It signals food. That's it. I don't try to get them to follow it. I don't try to get them to do anything else. This specific target means food. And so now they don't even get into food mode if they don't see that target. But I tell you what, I, I have to hide the target until I'm ready to feed them because if they see it, their whole behavior changes. It's mm-hmm. totally like, like I'm going to eat whatever comes next. And if it's your hand or your arm, I'm eating it. So yes. I have to be cognizant to hide that target until I'm ready. And I show it to them and it's immediate. Okay, I'm, I know I'm getting food. There's the signal. Yeah, that is exactly how my boas are. Like they are sweethearts. They're never aggressive at all. But it's the scent of the rat. As soon as that enters my reptile room, their body 
language completely changes. Like you can see their pupils dilate and they're like moving around. So what I've started doing is instead of feeding them off the tongs, I've started just hiding the rat in the enclosure and, and putting it somewhere where yeah. they have to go and look for it. And I was really surprised at how yes. long it took them to figure that out the first few times. Like even sort of slithering over the rat and they're they're looking for it, but they don't realize it's there. Eventually yeah. they figured it out. Yeah, boas and pythons are more um, ambush predators waiting for something to move beneath them or in front of them. And so they they react to those foraging exercises or those puzzle feeders or foraging exercises where you just hide things in the enclosure much differently than a rat snake or a colubrid who is used to actively going out and hunting. So if I do a foraging exercise with one of the pythons, they're very slow and deliberate to find the food and they find it. And sometimes they won't even eat it until I move it a little, mm-hmm. or it takes them forever to finally eat it, or they leave it and move on because it didn't move. Well, with my bull snake or my corn snakes, they find that food, they eat it, and then they move on and look for more like right away. So it's super interesting to see the different hunting styles between the different species of snakes. But you definitely, when you're training or trying to, modify behavior want to work with your animal's hunting style yeah yeah that makes sense and that's where i think puzzle feeders are really interesting and we kind of had this conversation yesterday with a few people where people want to start puzzle feeding and then a lot of times they start with a a puzzle that's just way too advanced it's like giving a rubik's cube to a two-year-old and you're like hey what the hell's wrong with you can't you figure this out so the definition of a puzzle feeder can be much much simpler than many people think i think so maybe you can lay lay that out Yeah, when I start puzzle feeding or when I start working with an animal that I know the end goal is to be able to put them in a maze of objects and have them hunt for food, forage for food and find it. Or when I want them to have to work very, very hard to get food out of an object, I just start first with something simple. Put a couple of lids or plates out there and put a food item on one or two. And then maybe next time I'll cover that food item up with two plates, but they can still get the food easily in between. Or I'll put a cardboard box in there or like an empty plastic coffee container without the lid on it. So they still have to get in there, but there's nothing they have to preventing them from getting to the food. So you start out really simple and then you start making it more and more complex as they get better at it. And I did that with my bull snake, who's now two years old. And so now I set up very complicated foraging exercises for her with like 20 items and I'll hide maybe two pieces of food for her to find and then her puzzle feeders are harder so um, I actually closed a rat inside a cardboard box the other day but I didn't seal the lid it was just closed and she had to figure out either how to get around it and open the lid what she ended up doing is pushing the lid until she could get around it and she went behind the door, which now, you know, is like an open door and got the rat from behind it. She spent a long time doing that and never gave up. Had I presented her that right off the bat, she would have never done it. You know, they have to work up to that skill level. Yeah. And it's amazing. And just imagine how much better that is for her to use, utilize that energy and the brain power and, and get her body moving in the exact same way she would in the wild if she was going to raid a nest right. or go through a burrow and, and find some Correct. food that way. Well, and not only that, but she, bull snakes are darty. I mean, I let her out quite a bit, but I physically have to watch her 100% of the time. Where the pythons, you know, they come out and I put them on an exercise station or in an exercise area and I can leave for a few minutes of time walking out of the room. 
because they don't really move that far that fast. They're pretty chill. They're very active, but they're not darty. Well, you know, both snakes are pretty darty and she got away from me the other day, like not got away where I was trying to catch her, but I went in the other room to do something and came back and she was gone. And I'm like, darn it. And she had gotten under one of our dog uh, crates. And I thought, okay, I could try to get a hook and get her out. I can move the dog crate, but really what's the least intrusive, easiest way for me to get her out. So I set up a, pu um, a puzzle feeder exercise on the floor in front of the dog crate with a bunch of the boxes and cups she was used to foraging through. And I hid a mouse in it. And you know, she came right out and started engaging in that puzzle feeding exercise. And she found her rodent. And then I picked her up like normal and I put her back. And so there are other uses for these things than just our fun or just for us to see how far we can train a snake. It, they have practical applications for sure. Yeah. And, and that, that really touches on that choice-based care where it's, it's so much less stressful for an animal than you open the door, allowing them to come out. So in terms of teaching the animal to come out on their own, I guess the target training is the easiest way to do that. Or maybe put something in front of the door, like a jun like some sort of jungle gym for them to climb on, something that they yeah. engage in. Is that the two kind of easiest ways to teach them to come out on their own? It depends on the temperament of the snake. Like, the one Bradley I have so outgoing, like I didn't have to teach him to come out. Like he wanted out since day one and he sleeps all day. And when he wakes up at night, he has a path he goes through in his enclosure, but then he ends up at the door and he starts pushing on the, he knows where the door opens and he starts pushing on it and I open it and then he does his thing. So I didn't teach him that, you know, I didn't have to with that animal. Most of the middle of the road animals that are like, yeah, I'm sitting here in my enclosure, but I'm going to get pretty scared if you try to get me out. Or if you open the door, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I usually with them just open the door if they're near it and give them time to sniff the air to see what happens. I'll set something adjacent to the enclosure and see if at any time they choose to come out on their own and discover that it's reinforcing to be able to move around and investigate stuff outside. For really, really shy snakes or fearful snakes that aren't taking that initiative on their own or aren't seizing the opportunity to come out and enjoy that freedom when you're giving it in a sort of non, in a, in a sort of passive way by just opening the door and stepping back and see what happens. I just did a video about that at the request of um, some people I know that are training their snakes. They said, well, how do you start with choice-based handling? So I did like an 11 minute video for the average snake, how you wait for them to see them awake, see them near the door and then just open it and sit back and watch what they do and give them an opportunity to come out or not. But for super shy snakes or super fearful ones, you're gonna have to start target training or puzzle feeding in the enclosure or training to them to a small shift box in the enclosure. And once they're used to that within the enclosure, then you set up that exercise just right outside the enclosure. And then once they're targeting right outside, even if it's just their head or they're coming right out to do the puzzle feeder or they're shifting into the shift box when it's adjacent to the enclosure, then you can start moving those things further and further away and watching their behavior after they're done eating to see if they're now interested in what's going on outside. And obviously super dirty and fearful snakes, you don't want to be doing anything out of their enclosure with because you'll lose them. You know, super yeah, quick yeah. snakes that just 
fly out of your hand or are going to dart, they're not ready for that. That you need to set up in their enclosure these exercises. Or I've even set up these exercises in um, a giant tub or a cardboard box or like the, um, the cloth dog exercise pins that are totally enclosed. It looks like a tent. Yep. I've set up exercises in there and used a shift box to get the fearful or shy snake out of there. Like I wait for them to naturally be in their shift box. For those kind of snakes, it might be good to note. I also only use hides that have bottoms in them. Like super shy snakes or fearful snakes, I don't give them hides without bottoms because if I need to clean or get them out, I just wait until I notice they're in their hide and I lift the whole hide out. And so then you can lift the whole hide out and put them in the tent or the crate with the exercise and see what they do. Some are still too fearful to do it. And then you just put them back and know that you need to start that in their enclosure. Yeah, that makes sense. That's that's a really good point because it's uh, I have one of my boas is is really she comes out very easily. You know, open the open the door and she slides out. And for me, one of the things I need to do better at is just making the room more safe, uh, snake friendly, so I can let her out and let her go around on her own. Because I'm constantly having to interfere with her investigations of the room because right. she's going under things or getting caught in cables and whatnot. Right. So I think if I when I do get a, a better room, that'll be one of the things I do. One of the things that she does is she'll she will i think maybe similar to what you were saying your one snake does is she she comes to the door and it's like she wants out and she pushes against mm-hmm. it and, and i don't think it's in a stress yes. way i think i have sort of taught her that when she does that i crack the door and, and let her come out and it definitely is easier yeah. when you have an animal that's just 100 percent willing to come out and explore well and you're teaching each other some of my brettles pythons you know you'll hear people say well i know my snakes are out because I see them on cameras, or when I first come in the snake room and turn on the light, they're out, but then they hide. Well, mine do the opposite. My Bradley, they might be hiding or resting, and if I come into the room and I turn the light on and I start working on the computer, oh man, they're up, they're at that door, they're pushing on it, they're wanting out, because they know that now I'm available to let them out. And it's very interesting when you're seeing the opposite behavior of what people would normally think from a snake. Right. Yes, no. exactly. And that behavior is different than edging. Edging is a stress behavior. And that's where the snake is pushing their nose all around all the surfaces of their enclosure, all of the walls and the corners, or they're darting around the enclosure, or they're pressing on the top and they're rubbing, rubbing their nose raw or something. That's a different behavior than when they're going to a specific spot at the door and literally trying to push it open. I've literally had to put locks on some of my sliding doors because I've had bigger pythons start to mm-hmm. push it open. Yeah. Yeah, oh, they eventually learn how to open the door. I, I want to make sure I bring, I want to bring this up and see what you think of this too because that that reminded me of this point. Where in the hobby I always hear people say, "Well, snakes it stresses snakes to come out of their enclosure and they prefer, you know, small dark places or they just want to be left alone in their enclosure." And then that same person will tell you when you take your new snake home, well, they're escape artists. So you really want to make sure that you tighten the lid down or you put a lock on the door. Well, why would they escape if they never went out of their enclosure? You know, you just told me that it stresses them to come out, but now you're telling me they're escape artists, which is it? You know, that that's not logical. 
Yeah, exactly. You, you don't get to make both those points at once. I've actually never thought about that before. But yeah, that's totally a counterintuitive position to be in. It's like, yeah, they're going to try to get away from the environment, but also they will learn to love it, <laughs> which is not what right. we want. They, if they are escaping it, it there's something wrong. Yes. And if you notice, if you've had a snake escape, um, that they learn after one time. And, and there's scientific studies that have tested this behavior too, the, the escape behavior or the being able to find resources. That once they do it once, they remember the next time and they go back to that exact spot again and they'll try to escape the same way. So they have a very good memory and they're good problem solvers. I don't understand why people think they're not. Yeah, and you have to imagine the, the escape behavior, that's a pretty it's almost like a bold move in a lot of ways for an animal because it's going to be, it's already yeah. nervous. It's it, there's for it to actually want to escape out of an environment that it is probably aware of it being safe. Cause it's not being, you know, there's no predators, even though it, it, there's something right. wrong, so much wrong with the environment that it's actually going to take the risk of squeezing through a crack and then putting itself into right. a brand new environment that it doesn't know what it's like. Or it's seeking something else. So or resources. snakes do produce dopamine in their brain, which we know is the pleasure hormone or the pressure pleasure chemical but it's also the seeking chemical dopamine is produced during seeking behaviors and they do produce dopamine so if a snake's trying to get out of an enclosure obviously there can be several reasons for that maybe it just got there and it's a totally new environment it's not used to it um but maybe there's something wrong with the temperature or the lighting or something's not making it uncomfortable in the enclosure or maybe it's just seeking time out because it wants to look for food or a mate or it wants the freedom to stretch out or the freedom to explore. There's all sorts of reasons why it might escape, but they do they do escape at times and we all know that. Yeah, and actually that's a good point is one of the things that I had, a point that I had made when I was adding my jungle carpet python into this large enclosure was allowing him to, exp so I did the sort of the same thing that you would do is I put his quarantine tub right into that enclosure yeah. and I allowed him to come out on its own over several days and I was you know explaining to the viewers how different it is for his brain to explore that new right. environment through that dopaminergic response through that exploratory yes. mechanism in his brain rather than a fight or flight a cortisone spike and just right. trying you know they of course that would start getting edging and whatnot and he's, he's just flying around those are two totally Absolutely. different scenarios and they also stay in the memory as well Yes, they do. And so the one experience is terrifying and no learning's taking place. And now they're associating that environment with something bad that they experienced that was displeasurable. And the other way, that seeking behavior that stems from the dopamine production, they're remembering it in a positive way. It was something pleasurable for them. And it's something that they're going to be apt to seek out again in the future. And that's what you want to make any experience with you, whether it's a hands-off experience where you're just letting them out and watching them do an activity or where it's an experience where you're doing some handling. You want to make that a positive association and avoid negative association. Yeah, exactly. Do you have a favorite behavior that you've been able to teach or, or, or have a, a snake learn over time? Um. I just like the being able to get him to come out when I need him to with the target, but probably so far, the funnest behaviors for me are when not only do they shift out, but they follow that target to position themselves in a certain way that I want. Like um, I can position my inlands on branches 
or like over a perch and the other one the other night positioned correctly on that scale i mean that's exciting to get them not only to come out and go to someplace but get them to get in a certain body position i mean to me that's just really fun and cool and rewarding but it's also giving them physical exercise and making them think and part of why i think training is important is they're going to have more than one type of food response Sometimes snakes get in that food mode and nothing snaps them out of it. Like they're in food mode. And it's it's very close to being a modal action pattern at that point when they see motion and they just grab at whatever the motion was. They don't assess or evaluate if it was food or not. Their, their mind is on this train and it's not derailing and they're gonna bite in, in a food response, whatever it is. And once they bite, that modal action pattern then is, you know, bite, coil, constrict. Um, for a python or a boa, for colubrids, it's maybe something different. That's one way that they feed, but they can also learn to eat in a different way where they have to assess something first and determine is this food or not, and then I'm gonna eat it. And the way they eat it then is much, much different than the way they eat it when they're in that food mode. They'll usually take the food very gently, or they usually smell it a minute. Okay, yeah, it's food. They take it very gently, and then they'll wrap and constrict. But they can be broken out of that at any point along the process where if they're in that feeding mode, that zone where, where whatever comes by they're gonna eat, it's very hard to snap them out of that because they haven't been taught to sort of delay their reward, to, delay that satisfaction and, and assess and evaluate first. And, and training teaches them to do that. Training helps guide them to do that. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think for me, that would be totally key with my boas is learning them, teaching them to assess or, or get them into the habit of assessing because, yeah, they definitely go into that whatever move I'm going to strike at. And then you have a kind of a wild snake roaming around. But it, I think, yeah, yeah. if, if it's a, as more of a peaceful strike would be would be good. As, as So as far well, as the, oh, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was, I just mean, it's important to note that when you're doing that process, you're going to run into usually a period of time somewhere in the middle where the snake's going to start striking at the target. Right. Now, not all of them do. I've had some that never have, but some of them do because now they associate the target with food and they're getting so excited that they just strike at the target. And as a keeper and a trainer, you just have to not do anything really. Let them strike at it. They finish present it again, or, you know, take a time out, present it again, and then reinforce when they don't strike at it. Right. And that's part of that guided learning. You're helping them to learn to hold off on their gratification for a few seconds and assess what that is before they just assume it's food. Right. Yeah. So they're really understanding that the target itself is not the food. It's the presentation. They see it, then food is on its way, but it, the, the ball itself or right. the, whatever you have on your target, your plate or whatever is not what they're going to ingest. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I see that all the time. There's, there's a, uh, on YouTube, there's one, uh, well, he owns a zoo, so I don't have to say much more than that in terms of who this is, but, but they're always target training their monitors and they basically taught these monitors to just chase after the, the ball on the stick and, and start to eat it. And one of them actually did end up eating it by accident. Um, because, oh my like, gosh. Yeah. And I think it was okay. It passed it or whatever, but I, th I think that's what some people assume target training is, is that you're holding the target and then the, the animal's attacking the target. And it's actually not that at all. 
No, the target is in lieu of a signal to indicate something else is coming. Like, here's the signal, food's coming. Or as like a, a request or um, they used to be in animal training called commands, like a verbal command. But now we like to say verbal cues because the animals have the choice to say no if they don't want to do something. So it's not really a thing. So, but in lieu of a verbal cue, I also use the target like as a recall. I want you to come here or come to me. So follow the target here. Um, and those are both very controlled actions, either signaling food or calling the animal to a location. Those are very controlled and you don't want the animal eating the target or getting hurt on the target. Mm -hmm. You want the animal mm -hmm. to understand the target is a communication, is a way that we're communicating with you. It's not your food. You know, if you pay attention to what I'm telling you, just like I pay attention to your body language, then you're going to get reinforced for that. Right. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a good point. And um, so as, as far as the behavior-based feeding goes, you, we kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier, but I kind of, I wanted to, to circle back to it just to, because that's an interesting point. So when, when you're getting ready, obviously you don't have a consistent every Friday they, they eat type schedule, which I think many keepers do. And I think that's something that everybody should get away from. I think the sporadic feeding is much more healthy and natural. And we do tend to overfeed in the hobby anyway. But what sort of cues do you wait for to end up feeding? You were saying you kind of wait for them to really show that they're hungry. Right. Well, obviously it depends on the species of snake and what their normal hunting behavior is. So for the pythons um, and the boas, I look for them. So every night they kind of come out and they'll get in an ambush position, but it's sort of a mediocre ambush position. Like they'll get in the ambush position, but like if something else gets their attention, they'll move over there and check it out. And when you walk by, they're kind of not paying attention to you. And it's just sort of habit, I think, that they do it. Um, the boas will kind of come out of their hide, like the rainbow boas, and kind of sit on the ground and look at the door. But they're not really super reactive when you walk by. When they're really getting hungry, the rainbow boas will get climb and get in an ambush position. And that's a huge clue to me that, okay, it's actually time to feed them. Because that's not something they do all the time. With the pythons, they'll get in an ambush position that's less relaxed looking, like their body will be so tense, they look like they're just gonna spring forward at any second. And nothing else distracts them from that position. So nothing else you do interests them or breaks them out of it. And now when you're moving around their enclosure, like they're making these jerky mm -hmm. head movements, looking at that motion, like, okay, is that food? The other thing I notice with them is they'll be awake. At times, they're normally not awake. So like the carpet pythons, when they start waking up in the middle of the day, yeah, they're probably getting hungry. So I just look at the totality of all of those things. And also, have they eliminated since their last meal? Have I seen a bowel movement? Um, you know, those physiological things that you want to look for. But that's, that's just how I do it. And I've never had them refuse food when I've done it that way. Yeah. And yeah, there's no need for a schedule. No. When they're that intensely, okay, you know what? I'm serious about eating tonight. It's a total change in their demeanor, their body language. It may be a change in the amount of time or the time of day they're awake. It may be a change in their body posture and not just where they're sitting, but how they're sitting, how tense they are, and how reactive they are to everything in the environment. 
yeah. when the hog knows this grief, of course, when I see her doing sort of what we would see as not species typical behaviors, like pushing on the glass or or getting on a perch, I know she's hungry. Like that's a huge clue to me. I'm I'm in on a perch and I'm a terrestrial snake. So I'm really hungry. Yeah. I'm going to try a bunch of different things. (laughs) Yes. So when they start offering behaviors, that's sometimes a clue that they're hungry too, especially like the corn snakes, the bull snakes, they're pretty active snakes anyway. But when with, especially the corn snakes who are very active normally, but just do their thing when I'm walking around, if they now start really like turning their head quickly towards me, or like coming at me really quickly as I'm walking by, I know they're hungry. And yeah. my advice would be really know the natural history and the biology of your species and how they normally hunt in the wild. And then really get to know their body language in the captive environment. And you will be able to tell when they're seriously hungry. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly what I was going to say is knowing the body language of the animals that you have is so important. Like you have to observe them and every animal, you you know, the natural history, that's good. And then every animal you have in, in at your home is going to be slightly different depending on each specific animal itself. So, and it is really interesting when you, because, I mean, sometimes my bows will be dead asleep basking and they're just sleeping and I'll go in and change their waters and they won't care. But if it's been, you know, three or four right. weeks since they've eaten and I know they're getting hungry, yeah. Even a little bit of a sound, head pops up, immediately looks at what I'm doing, and, and they're they're just yes. you know they're they're, they're not going to come after me, but they're way more you know ready to go in case you know a, a rodent walks by. So it is key that you right. understand they're more your hypersensitive. Yes, yeah, they're more hypersensitive to things in their environment. Yeah, absolutely. But also remember, on the flip side of that, they're learning our behavior too. Mm-hmm. So if you want to be able to handle your snake at random times. You need to watch your own behavior and make sure you're not giving off false signals that may indicate to them that they're going to be fed. Yeah. And I work really hard with that on the babies, like the one snake that comes out on his own every night and I didn't have to teach him that. Um, he still gets an ambush position every night, yet I walk right up to him and pick him up because I haven't shown him that target. He's one that I show the target when food's coming. So he goes to his favorite ambush spots and gets an ambush position. But if he hasn't put himself away by the time I'm ready to go to bed, I go pick him up and put him away. And he knows that he's not eating because I don't have that target anywhere in sight. So they're not just teaching us their body language and behavior. They're learning ours. And we need to be forever cognizant of that because it's really easy to inadvertently teach animals things that we didn't want to teach them. Yes. Yeah, there's that there there's that saying like you you are always teaching it doesn't matter if you are intentionally doing it or not you are teaching yes. i mean me as a, as a coach for for athletes it's one of the things we talk about all the time if you're not teaching the positive things you're teaching the negative things by virtue of not yeah. focusing on the positive absolutely absolutely the other thing that i just want to make sure and mention because i know we're probably getting close to time i could talk all day um is that when people are picking out their first snake, this is one of the common mistakes I see. People will want a certain snake because of the way it looks. And then they get it home and it doesn't offer the behaviors that they want. And they're super disappointed with their snake or they try to force those behaviors. And then it goes badly and the snake bites them or the snake hides or now the snake's fearful. And now you have this negative interaction. And so I always advise people if they ask me, well, you know, what's a good first snake? 
well, what are your expectations of the snake? First, make a list of your expectations. What do you see that animal doing in your home? You know, do you see it climbing a lot, active a lot? Do you want one that's awake during the day, that's nocturnal? Um, do you expect to hold it a lot or do you just want one to look at? How much do you expect it to be visible? All of these things are important because different species are gonna have different behaviors and you don't wanna get a snake home who doesn't have the behaviors that you expected and then be disappointed with that animal because then you're more likely not to keep that animal. Yes, I, I, I remember years ago I was in, I think PetSmart or something, and I heard this lady complaining to one of the, the employees that she bought a crested gecko and she was upset that it was never awake during the day. And it's, it's just one of those things where if you don't know what you're buying, if you're expecting this lively gecko that's running around during the day, you should not buy a crested gecko. So it's, yeah, appearance should almost be the last thing on your list. You need to, Correct. If, exactly like you said, you said it perfectly, whatever you want from that, you could probably find a snake that will have those behaviors, but you're, right. you might not be a green snake or something. Right. Make a list of the behaviors that you want to see and what you want to do with the animal. And then I'll help guide you towards a species that's likely to fit that bill. You know, rainbow boas hide like 99.9% .9 of the time. I never see those snakes. At yeah. first it, it was alarming. I used to look for them because I would think they were dead, but now I've had them a while. Literally a couple weeks can go by and I don't see them. That's how they are. And so if I got them to see all the time and handle all the time, as a pet owner, I'd be really disappointed. So I think that you have to be honest with yourself and what your expectations of the snake are, and then have somebody help you pick out a species that's going to suit those expectations. Yeah, I've had the same experience with my rainbow bow. I've, I've thought she was dead several times. <laughs> like you just go like, geez, I haven't seen you, that. but they're very active, very like late, late at night, like two or three in the morning. Yeah, mine is anyway. So you just end up not seeing them. You see tracks and whatnot in the morning. But other than that, you think like, man, that thing doesn't move. But they like to hide. They yeah. like to be under things and, and under Thank leaf you. litter and whatnot. And what I like about carpet pythons and Bradley is even when they're sleeping, you can see them. Like right now I'm looking around and they're all out on ledges. Sleeping. Yeah. You know, they seldom, they hide. Sometimes they hide, but not very often. And so... Even during the day, if I'm sitting here working, I'm enjoying these snakes because they're just sitting out sleeping and I can see them and that's enjoyable in itself. And then at night, they're super active Yeah, for a yeah. lot longer than other species. Like the rainbow boas will be active for a little bit at night and then they go back to hiding. But the carpet pythons and the bredley, especially the bredles pythons, they're super active all night long. And usually when they start going to bed is when I go to bed and that's about three in the morning. Sometimes four in the morning. Are you, do you do that on a regular basis? You stay up that late? Yeah, but I sleep then till like nine or 10 a.m. So that's my sleep period is, I guess, just different than most people. But I did <laughs> yes. work, work nights for 10 years for the city. And um, I loved it. I had no problem staying up all night, working all night. Oh, okay. So you're and a bit I of a night owl then. I am. I am. That's normal. And the horses really get on whatever schedule you're on. And so it doesn't really affect them. And the dogs are going to be like, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. They'll just go whatever yeah. the human's doing. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> yeah. I'm like a, a sleep by eight thirty, nine 9 o'clock kind of guy. So I can't imagine staying up <laughs> until three or four in the morning. Oh, wow. No, that's pretty natural for me. And my mother's like that. And her mother was like that. So I think it runs in the family. Well, it works out but well I for tracking snake behavior. It does. And I pick species to work with that 
I'm well suited to work with too. Now, some of these other species I have one and two of, if I was looking at those species as potentially my only snake, those wouldn't be good species for me because they wouldn't meet my expectations as a pet owner. Mm-hmm. But as someone who studies behavior, I'm very interested to see these different species and their behavior. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a great point. Um, so I think this is this is awesome. I think we've given everybody a ton of information, and I, I want people to go check out your videos because we didn't go into specifics about how to target train and whatnot because all of that is already there, and it's so much easier to see your videos on YouTube and watch you do it in person. And I, I hope that we gave everybody enough to be interested in trying this because I don't know how many how many videos do you have right now. You have a lot. It's a lot. And it's so many because two years ago I retired. And so now I work from home all the time and it's so easy to set the camera up and videotape almost all of my training sessions with the snake. And so I literally have so much video that I post something every day. You know, I don't because I don't want to burn people out and I do edit those raw, the raw footage before I upload it. So I usually post two or three videos a week. And then one on Sunday, that's a little bit longer the Sunday video, I try to do an educational topic that's a little bit longer. Yeah, those are your super dwarf Sunday videos. Do you just for in terms of yeah. the topics that you pick? Do you just it's just sort of a, a sort of a random array of things that are related to either animal welfare or, or training specifically? It is, and sometimes it's by request. Like the one on choice based handling, I had people request that. There was a conversation on social media going on about it, and. Um, one of the people I know pretty well who, and she also trains her snakes and she's like, you know, can you just make a short video on the bullet points of how to do this? And I'm like, yeah. And it's actually really been one of my more popular videos so far. And so I now may do more videos like that, but yeah. as far as the super dwarf Sunday videos, I've tried to pick an educational topic um, using the super dwarf reticulated Python as sort of the center point. But now he's been here over a year and I think I'm going to go to once a month doing that. And on the other three Sundays a month, I'm still going to do educational videos, but I'll use different snakes. Yeah. But I like to use those Sunday videos to do some educational topic on training or welfare science. There's a fly in here now. Um, Or like how to build a perch or how to build a humidity box. I did a whole enrichment series on the five categories of enrichment that the AZA recognizes. And each week I picked a different one and I showed examples of how we do that here. Yeah, we are just like barely scratching the surface here. Like you have this so much more on YouTube. So people should definitely go check that out and and you can learn a ton more. There there was something else I was going to say, but it's now gone. So it'll come back later. As as far as the snake training. Yes, the snake training. I think. You asked about the snake training videos. I don't have one that's specifically a lesson step-by-step. I do have that. And I've taught that class in person here locally. It's about an hour long snake training course where I show a PowerPoint. I have a snake with me. I teach it. Um, I think that's a little bit long to do on YouTube because it's really hard to get people to watch long videos. But I might break that down into some short 10-minute segments and get up over the next few months because I think it would be worthwhile for those people who want to take the time to learn how to do it. You know, my long-term goals with the snake training for myself would be to publish more, to publish some papers or do a book. I mean, there's no books out there on snake training. Yeah. You were literally literally at the cutting edge. Yeah. Yeah. And Carrie and Peter are the only other ones that I know that train snakes on a regular basis. And their foundations in snake training class is, is exceptional. Um, I think I 
saw yesterday that Carrie said they're looking at offering it again. I'll happily audit it again. I audit a lot of other trainer stuff or take their courses because we learn from each other as tra animal trainers and behaviorists. We're always learning from each other all the time. And I get really great ideas from other trainers and then they've taken some from me that they've gone on to try. Yeah. Yeah. Their course is fantastic. So if they do host another one, I'll definitely make sure everybody is aware of that because obviously we took it last winter, I guess, or last yeah. fall. And it was, it was an awesome course. I learned a lot and, and yeah, people can learn a ton from your content. And, and even if you don't have specific training ones on there, there's a lot of you training so you can see how you do it. And it's yes. pretty interesting. Uh, one really quick question yeah. before I let you go. Do you name every single snake? Yes, I do. And I know all of their birthdays. They are individual family members to me. Yes, I have many of them that I wouldn't normally have gotten to be a snake family member. And I'm using them to learn about the behavior of that species, but they're still not gonna go anywhere. You know, I took them on and so they're gonna be here for life. And I name them all. I know if, if the person I got them from provided a hatch date or a birth date, I know what those are. And my husband says, how do you remember all of these? And it's, I'm not remembering them all in mass, but if you ask me about a specific snake, I know that snake and I know when they were born. And then I know that snake and I know when they were born. And I know the individual behaviors of this snake versus that one. I know yeah. it sounds like a lot, yeah. but when you see them as individual organisms with their own individual personalities, it's not hard to remember individual information about them. Yeah, well, it's very obvious when you're talking about them on your channel because you can see how intelligent you are and how much just all this stuff sort of naturally rolls off your tongue. It's like, and all these really unique, interesting names, but then also, yeah, you seem to, you're just dialed into each individual animal, which for a collection of 75 or 74 animals is really incredible. It's amazing that, that you can put that much time and energy into each one. So that is, that's phenomenal. Can you let everybody know, or before before I, I, uh, we, we end there, is there anything else that you wanted to add or throw in before we, we start wrapping up? I don't know. There's so much that now I better not start talking about anything else. I can talk all day. I taught for the city. Um, I've taught eight-hour classes before. I've taught one-hour classes before. And so that's why YouTube is such a good format for me because it's super easy for me to stand up and talk. Yeah. And the camera doesn't bother yeah. me. Um, that's an easy way for me to get information across. I also enjoy writing, but I take much more time and precision about the way that I write. And so, you know, I just can't sit down and write something today. I usually put a lot of research into it. I cite all of my sources. I recently wrote an article for the Herpeticulture magazine. Um, that's available free online on enrichment for snakes and other reptiles. And I spent several weeks on that article and I have sources cited in that article um, back to studies about enrichment and welfare. And so I spend a lot of time on writing and make it pretty technical. Whereas the videos I can just stand up and share information and flip the camera on for five or 10 or 15 minutes and be done and upload it with minimal editing and that's just quicker for me to get stuff out there than writing but i do also enjoy writing well we should just definitely do a part two that again that at some point in the future then if because <laughs> i know that there's way more we can go over and i think a part two is definitely necessary because this is you are one of the only people doing this and i i'm really excited i'm, I'm hoping that many of the listeners go check you out so can you let everybody know where they can find you online sure yeah, YouTube, it's just my name, Lori Torini. 
Um, and then animal, I think animal education, but if you just Google Lori Trini, it brings up the channel. Um, my business is behavior education, LLC. There's a link to it on the spirit keeper equine sanctuary website, which is spiritkeeperequine.org. But then I also have my own website for the training and it's behavioreducation.org. And then I'm on Instagram and Facebook and Facebook. I have my personal page, Lori Trini. And then uh, I have my behavior education page. There's a spirit keeper equine sanctuary page. And then on Instagram, I think it's just L Torini. I don't understand Instagram. I'm on Instagram and I post pictures up there every day, but I'm not really sure I get the point of Instagram. I guess just to look at pictures. Yeah, it's just to look at pictures. I, I'm 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 not the best with Instagram either. I sh- it, it does help, but it's one of those things that becomes more of a pain than anything. Because I like to share information and educate. Things like YouTube and Facebook are much better for me. And then there's a blog on my website. And so those things are much better for me than Instagram. Instagram, I just pop a picture on there every day. And I guess people look at it. <laughs> you could do like little teaching clips if you on Instagram. That would be kind of cool. Like if you did stories or something, uh, maybe that's yeah, something like I, I can could. show you. Yeah, because that, that would be, I think that would be helpful. But uh, anyway. And on that uh, amino app, like there's a snake amino and a reptile amino Yes. And I don't quite understand that completely either, but I am on there and I try to post a link to a video or a photo or something every day on there. But there's a lot going on on Amino that I don't understand. <laughs> I downloaded that app and it, it, I had it for like 20 minutes before I thought this is just too much. I don't know what's going on here. So I just deleted it as well. So yeah. I, I'm not entirely sure about that one. <laughs> Anyway, Lori, thank you so much for this amazing conversation. I think it's super eye-opening. I know that many people will just be scouring your YouTube channel now to learn more. So I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for hosting this. All right, that brings us to the end of that episode. Lori, thank you very much for that fascinating conversation. It really expanded my mind in terms of what I think is possible with snakes. And I know the listeners will feel the exact same way. So to the listeners, as I was editing this podcast, a question popped into my mind for Lori that I should have asked when we were recording. It didn't dawn on me until I actually re-listened to the entire thing. So I'm just going to paint a picture for you so you understand my question. So imagine I have my boa who I have trained to follow a target. So maybe she comes out of her enclosure, she's following the target, and I get her to station herself on a perch, for example. And now at that point, I would give her a food reward. So maybe I give her a rat or a rodent, doesn't matter, and she constricts it and she eats it. Now my fear is my boa is so hypersensitive when it comes to eating that she remains in that food mode for like an hour or two after she's eaten. So now I would have a boa who is out of her enclosure on a perch who is going to be in active hunting mode and I know for a fact that anything I do, any movement, if I want to go grab her or pick her up, she's going to strike at it and then she might even coil me, which would be a very stressful experience for me but also for her and that would actually cause a negative experience which would, I think, impact the training. So I asked that question to Lori, what do I do with a snake if I asked it to come out of the enclosure, it's followed it, but now it's in food mode, how do I get it back into the enclosure without creating a stressful environment? So Lori was kind enough to send me a video of her answering that question and at first she sent it to me and just said, hey, take snippets of that video, whatever you think is important and you can add that into the podcast. But I listened to the full 20 minute answer and there is so many gems in this, I couldn't cut any piece out. So I'm going to let that play now and then after this we will go through the outro. 
How do you handle it when you've shifted your snake out of their regular habitat for training? So they're now on a perch or they're on a station and you've used food as a reinforcement. Now the snake is in a heightened sense of food mode. They're very reactive to motion, maybe by you or other pets, and you don't feel it's safe to pick them up and put them back into their enclosure. And it might take them several hours to snap out of food mode and go back into their enclosure on their own, or be in a state of mind where it's safe for you to pick them up and move them. Obviously, the best thing that you can do is start working with snakes from the time they're babies. Start training as young as possible. The snakes I have raised from a very young age and have trained to do targeting and stationing and trained with a cue that means they're going to be fed have learned very quickly that there's no food coming unless they get that particular cue. They understand that when a training session is over, that they're not getting more food as reinforcement. Sometimes I give them other reinforcement at the end of a training session, such as time out to exercise or explore or something else they find reinforcing, but I don't give them any more food. And so from a young age, if you work with the snakes in this manner, they learn very quickly routines and procedures and what to expect. And it just reduces uncertainty in their mind. I don't have any issues with the snakes I've raised from babies, being able to pick them up and handle them after a training session, even when food has been used as reinforcement. I do have animals that I experienced that issue with though. And these are animals that arrived here when they were older animals, two years old or older. I've received some that are four years old. I have one pair of snakes who are undocumented carpet pythons. They're adults. We have no idea how old they actually are. The issues that I have found with ill-defined feeding parameters or animals that get into a heightened state of food mode and stay that way for several hours are those animals that I haven't trained from a very young age. Or animals that I got as pets a long time ago and I just started training them recently. So if you're working with an animal who's new to training, who maybe is already an adult, has no parameters set for when they get fed, um, when they get handled, or they're not familiar with target training and station training and what reinforcement actually means. And they haven't been taught a specific signal or cue that food is coming. And they haven't been taught more importantly to understand that if they do not see or receive that signal or cue that no food is coming, what do you do with those animals? Well, with animals that you know are this way, you wanna set yourself up for success. You wanna set your animal up for success. And that's gonna start with planning out your environment. So you're gonna carefully plan out how you set up the physical environment that you're gonna work in ahead of time. You also wanna have a simple training plan in your head as to how you are going to conduct the session. How are we gonna do this in the least intrusive, most effective manner and part of effectiveness is safety for you and the animal. How are we gonna do this so that we end on a successful note? So based on what you know about your snake, here are some options for consideration. I have tried all of these at one time or another and which one works with which snake is sort of an unknown. You're gonna to have to experiment with your snake and your setup and see what works for you and your animal 
and what doesn't. So that means that you might try one thing and it wasn't really very successful and then you have to try something else. The first thing that you can do obviously is work with them when you know that you're gonna have time to remain nearby and leave them alone after the training session and after they've received their food reinforcement. Allow them the hours they need to calm down and then hopefully they shift voluntarily back into their enclosure or they've calmed down enough that they just start to move around. Normally when I see the snakes stretched out in a rectilinear fashion and they're moving along in that rectilinear locomotion and they're slowly tongue flicking, that's investigative behavior and it's generally safe then to pick them up and put them back in their enclosure. If you don't have time to do that, or if you thought you had time when you started the session, but now something's happened, something unexpected has come up or there's an emergency and the snake needs to go back now, what do you do? If you're using a perch or platform and the snake is in a heightened state of food mode, you don't have time to wait for them to calm down so that you can pick them up or you don't have time to wait for them to decide to go back in, then you can use a snake hook or some type of a pole to assist you in picking that animal up and getting them back in the enclosure or guiding them back in if the platform that you're using as a station is adjacent to the enclosure. Remember that we strive for the least intrusive, most effective methods. And if at this point in the training for you and your animal, using a hook or a pole is the least intrusive, most effective method, that's, that's okay to do until the animal progresses in their training and they learn new skills. There isn't anything wrong with that. Obviously, if you have a snake who is extremely stressed out or distressed by a snake hook or a pole or being handled in that manner, you would not use this method. This is for snakes who are tolerant of it or who are desensitized to it and it isn't going to bother them. You can also just pick them up with their with your hands while they're eating. So this is the method I use with sev several of my snakes who are used to handling. Maybe we've had one successful uh, target training try and maybe on the second try, I usually do one to three tries during a session or the third try while they're swallowing the prey item. I'll go ahead and pick the snake up and put them in the enclosure and they can finish eating in there. And I use my hands or a hook or a pole or I pick the perch up and sort of gently push them off into the enclosure. If that is going to stress your animal and cause them to spit the food back up or <clears throat> push the food item back out of their mouth because you've touched them while they're eating, then don't use this method. It works great for some of my snakes. They can't bite you while they're swallowing a prey item. So I just wait for them to start swallowing it down not just constricting it and biting it, but once they start actually swallowing, then I just pick them up and put them back in the enclosure and they can finish eating in there and I can close the doors and everything's good. Another thing that you can do if you know that you're not going to have time or if you don't wanna plan the time out ahead of time to wait for them to shift back on their own or wait for them to calm down so that you can move them is plan to target them back into their enclosure. If the animal is an accomplished target training learner and if they understand that that target means they're gonna get a food reinforcer and that following that target means that there's going to be a food reward at the end, please remember that you are reinforcing the behavior and that you're not reinforcing the animal. So you don't wanna give the reinforcement until you get the desired behavior. But you've done your target training session, you've targeted the animal out of the enclosure, they're on their station, they're on their platform, they're on their perch, and now you want to target them back into their enclosure. 
So you want to plan out the meal ahead of time that you've got two or three meal items and that those together equal a normal sized meal so you're not overfeeding the snake. When it's time to target them back into the enclosure, the logistics of how you do that is going to depend on your enclosure setup. Do you have an enclosure that has front opening doors and a way to access the enclosure from the top? If so, it's great. Open the front doors, station the snake, and you are, should have already planned this out ahead of time that the snake's station or perch is already adjacent to their enclosure and the doors are open. So you can stick the target down in from the top, target them back into their enclosure, deliver the reinforcement, which is going to be another food item, and then close all the doors while they're eating. If your enclosure only has front opening doors, whether they slide or they are hinged, then what I do if it's sliding doors is slide both doors to the middle so that I can stick the target in one end of the enclosure and have the snake enter through the other end of the enclosure and target them the length of the enclosure until they're all the way in, give them the food reinforcement, shut the doors while they're eating. If you have hinged doors, I will do the same thing. I will open both doors. I'll stay at one end with the target, target them in and across the enclosure until their whole body's inside. And then I'll remove the target, give them the food reinforcement and close the doors. If your enclosure is not long enough that the whole snake gets inside, I would go ahead once most of their body is inside and deliver the food reinforcer because while they're eating, you can always use a hook or your hand to move the tail end in the enclosure and shut the door. So you can target the animal back into the enclosure. You can also use a box or a tub as the station, one that you're able to close. So it needs to be big enough for your whole snake to fit in. And instead of having the snake target out onto a platform or onto a perch, you have them target out and into the tub or the cardboard box. You do your training session, deliver your food reinforcement, and then close the box up and you can leave. I mean, make sure the snake can't get out. And then hopefully by the time you return, they've calmed down enough that you can pick them up and put them back in the enclosure. The other option you can do is open the box or the tub and put the opening adjacent to your snake's enclosure so that there's no other place that the snake can move to. They can either stay in the box or they can move into the enclosure. There are no other options. And that way you're behind protected contact and the snake can shift back into their enclosure. Now, if you're using a box or a tub as a station, you can do the targeting exercise and leave the box or the tub open and let them sit there a while and do your training sessions, let them look around and habituate to the room. But the point of using the box or the tub is that when you need to, you can close the animal inside it and carry them back to their enclosure. If the whole tub fits in the enclosure, put the whole tub back in the enclosure, take the lid off, and then the animal can come out when they want. If it won't fit in the enclosure, then you need to take the lid off or have an opening available somewhere in the box that you put up to the enclosure entrance and have the snake shift back in. You can just use a plain shift box and you can set a shift box or a hide with the bottom in it or a cardboard box near the station or the perch that the snake has done their training on. And sometimes that intrigues them enough that they go inside the box or that they start investigating it and that snaps them out of food mode. But I've used this really successfully with snakes before. They don't wanna come off the station. 
They don't want to go back in their enclosure, but I put a novel hide there. And within a couple of minutes, they've gone inside the hide to investigate it. And while they're inside, I just lift that whole box or that whole hide up and put it in the enclosure. It would be the size of what would be an appropriate hide for the snake. So it isn't a whole big temporary holding tub. It's just a little hide that has a bottom in it that the snake can fit in. You can lift the whole thing, put it in their enclosure and retrieve it later. For a snake who has an extreme issue with this, I use the shift container design so that it has an opening on one end that the snake can enter through. It has a closed top, closed sides, closed bottom, and it has an opening on my end that I can put the target and the reinforcement through. So it's kind of like a tunnel. And I've just used a long um, tub and I've cut a hole in each end. So I can put that up to the snake's enclosure door, open the door, and then the only option the snake has is to stay in their enclosure or come through the opening in that end of the tub. I put the target into the tub. I make sure the snake sees it. I target them into the tub and towards my end, I deliver the food reinforcement. I step away. I block both ends of the tub until the snake is done eating. And then I unblock the end adjacent to the snake's enclosure and I allow them to shift back in. That's completely protected contact. And so you're not in any danger of any accidental food strikes or bites. And for really highly reactive animals and animals that really get hyped up around food, this is the method that I've used. You can also, if you're comfortable with it, feed your snake and target your snake in their regular enclosure. This obviously works really well if you have a long enclosure or a tall enclosure and you can open one side and target the snake from one end to the other and deliver the food reinforcement in the enclosure. If you have a lot of environmental complexity set up within the snake's enclosure and you have a long enough pole for your target, you can actually target the snake out of a hide. You can target them up onto a perch. You can target them to sit on top of a log or any other item that you might have in the enclosure. And you can target them to different locations within the enclosure without having to remove them. And I do do that with some of my snakes. And sometimes I start this target training like that in the enclosure. And then we eventually start targeting the animal out of the enclosure and then back in the enclosure. And it gets them used to following that target. All right, this next method I'm gonna go over is something that I use for one animal we have here who has a very ill-defined sense of feeding parameters. And when he gets in food mode, will bite literally anything that moves. Your hand, another animal in the household, a cord if it has, happens to dangle by his face, he'll strike at anything that moves and creates motion that he sees when he's in that heightened food mode. I mean, when he's in the zone and he thinks food is coming, whatever moves in front of him next, he is going to strike. So what I do with that animal when I'm going to feed him, I open his enclosure and let him come out as if it's a normal exercise session. I wait for him to come out of his enclosure and be stretched out rectilinearly. Typically when the snake is moving in a rectilinear fashion and they're slowly or moderately tongue flicking, that's an exploring mode. They're exploring, they're roaming, that's not food mode. It's safe to pick them up then. So I wait until he comes out and he's just cruising along all stretched out in a straight line. I pick him up 
I put him in a temporary holding container and I shut the lid. I then have an opening in that container where I can target him within the container and deliver the food reinforcement in that container. After he's eaten and it's time to put him back, I do one of three things, depending on how much time I have and what kind of a mood he's in. I take the lid off and I wait for him to come out and start moving in that rectilinear locomotion where he's just back in exploration mode. And then I pick him up and put him away. Or I take the lid off and if he looks like he, he might be ready to eat more, I use a snake hook or a pole and pick him up and put him back in the enclosure. If he is in too much of a heightened state for even that much handling, I take the lid off, keeping it between me and the opening to his enclosure as a shield, and I tip the tub towards his enclosure door so that now he has no option but to stay in the tub or move back into his enclosure. And that's how I handled that one particular animal who just gets so heightened around food that I have to make sure that I'm protected from any accidental food bites. In case you're wondering why we don't just feed this particular snake within his enclosure, instead of taking the trouble to get him out, either physically or letting him come out on his own and do some training outside of his enclosure, we did try that. We have tried feeding the snake inside his enclosure and he's absolutely terrified and distressed at the combination of food inside his enclosure with him. And we feed frozen thawed. I don't know if his previous humans fed him live and something happened. I don't know if his previous owners fed him inside the enclosure and teased him or did something that frightened him. But when he is inside his enclosure with a frozen thawed food item, he becomes extremely distressed, extremely fearful, and he remains that way for an extended period of time. And I don't mean just hours, I mean over a week where he isn't resting normally, he isn't drinking, he isn't moving around his enclosure in a normal fashion. He's getting in a position where he feels safe. He's staying in defense mode. He's extremely tense. His body language displays fear, anxiety, and distress and it's just crazy. He doesn't engage in any normal activities and he won't come out and explore for at least 10 days after we've tried to feed him in the enclosure. And so for that particular snake, feeding him out of the enclosure is a better option. When he is fed out of the enclosure, and then once we get him back in the enclosure, he's very relaxed and comfortable and calm in his enclosure. He exhibits normal behavior within his enclosure and he does normal activities within his enclosure, like drinking and sleeping and resting and hiding and climbing and perching and all of the normal things that are species typical for a Morelia Bredley. He does not do that if we try to feed him in the enclosure. So for this particular snake, it's detrimental for us to do that. And it's much better for him if he is fed out of the enclosure. Just remember to think least intrusive, most effective for each animal and for each situation. So it may not be the best ultimate option that is your ideal goal at the end, but it may be the best option at this time. And you will progress as the snake learns and you learn to less and less intrusiveness. 
and to more cooperative behaviors from your snake, the more you work with them and the more they understand what's going on. Also remember that one thing may not work. If you try one thing and it doesn't go well, try something else. You're gonna have to experiment and see what's best for you and your snake, keeping in mind minimal intrusiveness, safety, and effectiveness. So whatever is the safest, least intrusive, most effective method for that snake in that situation, then that's what you do. If you have any more questions, let me know. I'm happy to answer. All right, Lori, thank you so much for taking the extra time to answering that question. That was such a thorough answer. And I think if anybody else is like me who has a few food aggressive snakes, a few of those tips are definitely going to work. I can't wait to try them. Make sure you check out the show notes for this episode. I'm going to include quite a few different links in there. You can find the show notes in the YouTube description box or at animalsathomenetwork.com. Just click on the Animals at Home header and then click on the episode tile. This is episode number 61. In the show notes, I included the video that Lori mentioned in the podcast, and that's the video of her target training one of her Morelia bread lie to come out onto the scale, and she actually had it wrap around one of the stool legs. You remember early on in the podcast, she was telling us about that. So she has that video. She did post it last week, so that is in the show notes. So in the show notes, I'm also going to include an article that Lori wrote for the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants, and the article is called Training Snakes to Voluntarily Relocate. Now, I know in the podcast, we didn't go through any step-by-step processes because it is a little bit hard to do that just audio. So go to this article. Of course, her YouTube channel has tons of this as well, but the article goes through a step-by-step process of how to do that and it also includes videos showing you how to do it so it's a fascinating article go give that a read i've also included her article that she wrote for the herpetoculture magazine and i've also included a link to the facebook group reptile enrichment and training i know Lori is a very active member in this group she's always asking questions and sharing content on there but this is a about 10,000 other keepers in this group that are just like you just trying if you're wanting to get into training for the first time very beginner type questions people working with many different animals, not just snakes, but lizards and, and, you know, and I don't know about amphibians, but definitely lizards as well. And I highly recommend going to check out that group if you are somebody that's wanting to get into this because it's a good beginner group. There's advanced stuff, but there's also people that are just getting into this as well. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening to this episode of the podcast. Again, if you want to support the show, sharing is one of the best ways you can do that, but you can also go to animalsathomenetwork.com, pick yourself up a shirt. $5 does get donated to the Amazon Rainforest Conservancy. And thank you very much to our sponsor, customreptilehabitats.com. If you are looking for any new reptile-related equipment or new enclosures, check out the affiliate links in the YouTube description as well as the show notes. If you do end up purchasing something, a small commission does come back to me, which of course helps support the show. I will talk to you guys next week.